Hello, and welcome to the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian. I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we'll be discussing prescribed burns with land professional Mark Anderson out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. This discussion is based on the Landowner's Guide to Prescribed Burns by Mark Anderson and published on nationalland.com. Mark Anderson comes to us with 35 plus years of experience in forestry and land management. Prescribed burns happen to be one of Mark's specialties. Now, sit back and enjoy the show. All right, this is Mac Christian with National Land Realty here, and I'm sitting with Mark Anderson. Uh, you're located out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And uh, Mark, I want you to tell me a little bit about your background, because I'm always, I'm always fascinated by when I, when I talk to, to agents that work within our company, um, the land professionals that we have. I think people from the outside often are like, they don't, they kind of picture, you know, a land agent is just kind of like a, a hillbilly real estate agent, right? And and really what we have is, is there's this diverse background set that everybody has and diverse education and very, very specific education. And I think that yours applies. So I want, I want you to tell me a little bit about your background here. Yeah, thanks, Mac. Thanks for having me uh, on the, uh, the podcast. So as you referred to, I, I am in uh, the lower part of Mississippi, South Mississippi, my background is I'm, I'm a forester. I went to forestry school at Mississippi State, and I'm a licensed forester. And that serves me well because it allows me to, to interpret what uh, clients are looking at. But so part of my background is when I was uh, in college, I started working for the federal government, the U.S. Forest Service. And I stayed with that agency for some 13 years. And so the Forest Service where I was located was in the deep south and we had a fairly aggressive prescribed fire burning program. And so it was, you know, goes hand in hand with the training. So I became, I got a lot of the training with the Forest Service and worked my way through those, those training channels and became involved in wildland firefighting, spent a lot of time out west, you know, on a hotshot crew. I became a fire behavior analyst, which is a certain designation that you're supposed to become an expert in fire behavior, how it interacts with weather and things like that. So that was a fun gig. So I got to experience a lot of fire in, in a lot of different uh, ecosystems throughout you know, North America. And uh, so it gave me a real strong basis on understanding fire behavior and weather and applying that back down to where I'm located in Mississippi. So at some point when I left the Forest Service, I became you know, even did a did prescribe fire as a as a vendor, as a contractor, and managing uh, uh, tracts of land for my uh, forest landowners. We started applying a lot of fire, and so that's kind of in a nutshell what what I still do on a very limited basis because you know fire is kind of a young man's game. It's 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 arduous, uh, especially on a hotshot crew. That's uh. That's like a marathon runner plus a bodybuilder at the same time running through the woods, right? Yeah, hotshot crew is is a twenty person crew that you know they're stationed throughout the United States at strategic locations, and whenever there is a really tough fire situation, that's the crew that gets called in to manage that you know 
attack that fire. So yeah, that's, yeah, we could probably do a whole new podcast on that. But that training, that background made me very comfortable with fire in control setting and, you know, really an uncontrolled setting, but you get comfortable with it and it, you know, it allows me to be kind of a, maybe a, a skilled applier of fire. Yeah, it's debatable, but yeah, that's my background. If, if you can ever really control something like that, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's I, and, I'm, and I'm familiar with the hot shots. I grew up in a near a smoke jumper base, and everybody and, and just living in the Western Mountains. That that was always a that profession is is in high demand. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to. And the discussion today revolves around you know prescribed burns on on properties, and and it's managed a little differently. I want I want to be able to put a disclaimer on the discussion, like you know, and I'm sure you can do a better job of, of throwing a disclaimer on it. But you want to make sure. The, the legalities behind doing a prescribed burn vary from state to state. And it's very much different on the West Coast than the East Coast, especially in recent years where the West Coast keeps on going up like a Roman candle every summer. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that, just the, not necessarily on a specific basis so that we don't get ourselves in trouble, but right. but uh, but more like the differences in, in what landowners need to need to do to be on the up and up. That's right. And there's a lot of states have enacted legislation, state statutes that that manage or controls or, or regulates prescribed fire. It, some of your southern states, for example, are even right to burn states where they're even encouraging the use of fire. But invariably, they're going to have some regulation on like, you know, you're certified as a prescribed fire manager and what training requirements are, you know, it have to be in place. Uh, you got to have written burn plans that some some states are very simplistic and others like probably out west are very detailed that takes, you know, uh, you know, maybe several weeks to complete. Uh, you have to get a permit, you know, those permits to do the actual fire. And that's based on, you know, a lot of times those permits are issued based on atmospheric conditions and some fire weather severity conditions, but for the most part, that that smoke management is a big deal. And so a lot of those permits are issued based on good conditions for the smoke to actually move away from the burn area and not sit there and cause visibility issues. So every state has you know a different approach to it, but there, but yes, every state regulates prescribed fire in some form. I didn't, you know, and I didn't even think about the smoke part of it because you, you think about areas of land that have strong inversions, and that becomes a big problem. Yes, and you know, invariably, especially in the South, you don't have vast wildernesses that you're not worried about where your smoke goes. But right. when you light that fire, it's your smoke. You you own it. And in the South, Southern states, you know, a lot of the the timberlands are interspersed with you know, houses and farms. And so, yeah, that really becomes the driving factor of the regulation and permitting is not the fire severity, but what, what your smoke is doing. Right. So, so, I mean, you know, now that we've covered our, our tails here, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, talk to me a bit about why, why would you burn your, your land? You know, that, yeah. that's the, the easiest way to put it. Like, why would you do this? Yeah, why, why fire? Well, right. you got to understand some of the, the history 
of fire. Look, fire, wildfire is a natural occurrence in the environment. You know, just about every ecosystem in North America is influenced by fire in some form or another. And we kind of classify that as pre-settlement versus, you know, settlement times. In other words, before the Europeans moved in the United States or North America and, and created roads and fields and so forth, fires would sweep through, for example, in the, the southern states, longleaf pine, there was some 90, 90 million acres of longleaf pine ecosystem. And that's a, that's a fire dependent system that lightning strikes that would occur in maybe the early summer, through the summer, late summer, would start a fire and that fire may burn a day, a week, a month before it ran into a river or some other, you know, rain event put the fire out. So fire is really, it's really a very uh, integral part of shaping our ecosystems, plants and animals. And kind of take it a step further, and I'm referring to the South because that's where most of my expertise is, but it, I think out West too, that a lot of our endangered species, plant and animal species, that's on most federal list of threatened or endangered, Many of them, if not most, are tied to loss of that fire habitat and, and loss of the actual application of fire. So it is it's, it's an extremely important tool to use. So, so there's almost an effect of human mitigation efforts have almost interfered with that cycle a little bit. So it's, so it's sort of encouraging the natural cycle of, of you know, you have the undergrowth and then you're rotating back to low growth. And so, so talk to me about what does that do? Like, so you, you burn an area and what are the benefits that, that sort of impact the land when, when you do a prescribed burn? Like, so when a landowner is doing this, you know, there's, there's probably an assumed value, but I, I would like you to talk a little bit in, in detail to sort of like give a rundown on, on what are you getting out of this in terms of value, either tangible or intangible, right? Right. And we kind of categorize that as landowner benefit. So what is the benefit to the landowner? Well, you know, uh, to reduce the wildfire hazard by doing a control burning under controlled circumstances, we're basically consuming a lot of that dead material that's on the ground that's eventually could burn and be catastrophic. So under controlled conditions, we're basically robbing that of a chance for a wildfire to be catastrophic. We call that hazard reduction. You know, we can also control a lot of the undesirable brush that accumulates. You know, most of our, our stands of timber it, you know, economically is some form of pine, pine timber. So hardwood brush tends to grow up underneath that and it, and it competes against your, your trees that you're trying to grow as a crop. So that, we tend to call that a control of undesirable species. But the biggest reason why getting those out of the way is the wildlife benefit. Many people buy our lands that we offer for sale is because they want, they want to hunt. And white-tailed deer, uh, uh, eastern, you know, wild turkey, quail, they all benefit from you know, controlled burning. I mean, it's probably arguably the single most cost-effective wildlife enhancement tool that you can do. Many people will plant food plots and feeders, and those are fine, but the, the fire top kills, you know, a lot of this hardwood brush and plants, and they sprout back from their roots. Well, take white-tailed deer, for example. It's a browse animal. It's a grazing animal. 
And so if, if, a, if a hardwood plant is 20 feet tall, there's nothing for that, that unless he's a giraffe, <laughs> that, <laughs> that that deer can seriously cannot, there's no food available for him. And so by doing a controlled burning, you're top killing those plants and they sprout back from the roots. And it is like a cafeteria of food for them. That food plots may last, you know, a couple of months out of the year. That prescribed fire will generate good browse in a food factory for deer for, for three or four years. And, and when so you're saying food plots, for, for Western audiences that are not as used to it, you're talking like it's usually a crop that is put in the ground to lure in deer, correct? That's right. Or whatever game species. But even, you know, and I, I know I'm focusing on white-tailed deer, but like elk habitat, when I was with the Forest Service, we were, we were involved in a in an elk habitat reclamation program, and they were looking at trying to introduce prescribed fires, especially on those lower elevations where it's more controllable. So it's not just white-tailed deer, it's a lot of those browse animals. Wild turkey, very popular species, that wild turkey likes to go into areas that had recently burned and picked up uh, acres that they couldn't find in the winter, uh, insects, seeds, all that's uncovered when you remove a lot of that forest litter that accumulates. So it's great, well, it's great turkey habitat, a good burning program. And quail is another example. You simply cannot have a sustainable quail population unless you're doing some control of the brush. You know, quail's got short legs <laughs> and they can't, <laughs> and they just simply cannot physically move through the forest if it's, if it's choked out with brush. And so that, you know, matter of fact, with quail habitat management, you're looking at conducting burns every two years or less. Really? So, so what is your typical burn cycle? Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're looking to manage your land through prescribed burns, you, you mentioned, you know, if you're, if you're working with quail and you're trying to cultivate quail populations, a, a two-year cycle, what is the typical cycle? Is it dependent on the species that you're trying to cultivate or is, yeah. it, is there some kind of standards? No, you're, you're, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think it depends on the species. So white-tailed deer, because they're, they're grazing and browsing, that you know, one, three to five years is probably enough. Turkey is kind of more or less in the middle, and quail is obviously like a two-year cycle, really aggressive burning program that's, that's really necessary for quail. And, of course, you're going back to some of those other benefits we're looking for, like, like hazard reduction. I think you could do a, a hazard reduction burn every maybe three years or so. And when you say hazard reduction, this is to reduce undergrowth so that you don't have an uncontrolled wildfire, correct? That, that's right. And I think that's where, you know, you kind of alluded to some of the areas out west that have you know, huge wildfire problems is that's what you're trying to do is to deal with that fuel accumulation or vegetation accumulation. And then talk to me about cleanup after the fire. So there's, there's, and, and the only reason I'm, I'm asking about this is, is I'll probably more out of curiosity is, is there's a couple different stances um, post fire where some, some try to harvest the wood that has fallen or been burned or killed off. And then others say to let it fall and rot. What's, is, is there a standard practice for that? That's a good question. Um, hopefully you're, you're controlling the fire intentionally, whether you're not damaging and killing, you know, trees. You're killing a lot of the plants. I got you, and I'm probably coming from more from the perspective of wildfires that we look at a wildfire. Yeah, but in yeah. a wildfire, I mean, that, in a wildfire situation where it is catastrophic, fire kills 
the timber. And yes, there's a certain amount of debate on a national level about what should we do with that fire killed trees. And uh, yeah, that's that that's a touchy subject because of it is. You know, yeah. Logging outfits versus conservation outfits. It's a big deal out West for sure. Um, and yeah, I, and, and, I'll, I'll keep it out of that territory. <laughs> yeah. So there are some Western species that have what we call serotonous cones that actually fire is what drives the cones to open. So those type fires are like stand replacement fires. They actually kill the timber and a new forest comes underneath it. Now that's not what I'm referring to as a landowner we're they're not going to want to stand replacement fire <laughs> you yeah. know with uh, in the in the deep south that means you you miss some weather uh information there and burnt way too hot so so and, and i like to come at these these kind of q a sessions i like to come at it from the perspective of of, of claiming claiming an intentional ignorance uh so so let's go to the base of this if I want, if, if I think that prescribed burns, like, I, you know, I want, I want more whitetail deer on my property. I want more quail. Um, and, and I've never lit my property on fire. How do I not kill the trees? You hire uh, a, and someone who's very skilled in applying fire. I know that's a simple <laughs> answer, but it's really true that it does. It, it is a certain skill set because it's, it's an integration of, you know, understanding uh, the, the, we call it fuels, the, the vegetation that's, that's dead and dry, that's the fuel bed, and understanding how it interacts with the weather. In other words, the wind speed, the relative humidity, all those factors into how intense that fire is going to burn. So the, the first time you introduce fire, it hasn't been there in, say, a decade or several decades, that first burn is not going to accomplish as much as the second burn will. So you initiate the first burn to kind of condition the fuel bed and the vegetation response for the second burn and the third burn. So one burn on its own, it, I mean, admittedly it does. You, you're going to kill some hardwood and uh, some of the plants and they'll sprout back and deer will get a benefit. But you really, you're, you really need to continue that on. And every time you burn, the, the, the conditions get more favorable and the burn is easier to do. I was going to say, because that first burn, if you've gone a decade without burning, your fuel is going to be fairly thick in there. So you're going to get a fairly intense blaze out of it. You probably will end up killing some hardwood. Yeah, or you burn it with damper conditions where you're really not consuming as much, but just starting that process for the next burn. Because so wait for at a the end of the day, yeah, because at the end of the day, very few landowners are going to going to have any tolerance for killing their their you know their mature trees because that's a loss of revenue and loss of the whole reason why you're owning the timber right so you're saying don't go out there with a drip torch and a case of beer and get a couple buddies on the fire line that yeah that's what i'm saying don't do that <laughs> <laughs> i'm yeah. sure it happens um it, so it could but yeah let's don't let's don't talk into that term because <laughs> Because seriously, though, it is, it is, you know, you're, you're, you're conducting a, a plan and burn, you know, with the, you know, I'm going out there with a written burn plan with smoke management uh, uh, projections and what line, what fire lines we're going to construct and with what wind we have, what lines will we light, which lines will we not. 
So there's a lot of there's a lot of thought process in that. And you know, any 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 fire practitioner, if you want to call it that, can go out and conduct a burn and keep it within the lines and not escape. Uh, but it's the skill of conducting that burn where there it you're accomplishing goals, not killing mature timber and not creating too much scorch, which means it's scorching the trees, keeping the heat kind of at a moderate level across the across the area you're trying to burn. Right. So so tell me what, what are the best times of year to burn? Obviously winter is not a good time. So like in, in the dead heat of summer, I can imagine is probably a tell me tell me when you want to do this. Okay, Mac. Yeah, you're, so you're thinking wintertime in Idaho. It's got snow on the ground, but <laughs> I'm a little in, biased, so that's yeah. Bad. But in, but that's an excellent question. In the deep south, actually, the wintertime, January, February, and March is an excellent time to burn because the uh, the weather's predictable. You're going to have okay. a cold front. Cold front passes every three to five days or so. Uh, you know. Winds switch from the clockwise, so a cold front comes from the northwest, dumps some precip precipitation, then within maybe two days, as wind switching back out of the to the to the south, maybe for a couple of days, and it gets dry enough to burn, and you may have two or three days, and then another cold front comes through and it starts over again. So you got a certain amount of predictability in the winter time, and it's in in. And when you're wearing, you know, fire retardant clothing and it's hot uh, next to the fire line, wintertime is better on the crews too. <laughs> That's I didn't know you could time it out like that. I'm so used to weather that, you know, you can't even count on the weather reports to give you accurate information because it changes every 24 hours. <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's a totally different ball game. <laughs> yeah, Mac, I'm going to do a plug for the National Weather Service. Their prediction models have gotten so much more accurate in the last couple of years. It really is a lot better than it used to be when I first got into this game some 30 years ago. But um, so the, the, if you look at when fire occurs naturally and in the deep South, a lot of those fires occurred in, in the summer. So the best response for, from an ecosystem management point of view is those summer burns that you do a much better job of controlling a lot of that hardwood. The, the, uh, the wild turkey and, and the quail, they've already hatched off, you know, eggs off their nest and they're kind of can get out of the way. And so, every, you know, it works good that way, but it's just very, very difficult to do in the summer. It's tough on, on the personnel and it's, it's, uh, you have to be careful. So really in, in the deep South and the lower coastal states, probably the bulk of the burning is done in the winter, late winter and early 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 spring like right now matter of fact right. i had a i had a burn planned for this afternoon <laughs> and you know, here it is you know april 1 and uh i couldn't get a permit because we had such low wind speed the smoke wasn't dispersed correctly so couldn't do the burn that's interesting and i i wouldn't have even thought about that as far as timing it out so that you don't disturb nesting populations or or like new fawns right, right. there's a whole you know slew of animals it's you know spring is the season right so so timing it with that is uh, timing know. is important and a lot of our like for example longleaf pine is the kind of keystone species that developed under the you know ten thousand years of fire or so longleaf is actually cannot be damaged very easily through most of the year even in the summer 
the only time it is is when those buds, you know, the growth buds start to break open for the spring and they're they're unprotected and they can be damaged. So it just goes to show you like a long leaf that it, it evolved when there was a lack of fire during the spring because, you know, we're in the spring rains and things like that. So uh, it gives, a, uh, it protects, the, those buds are protected in the summer when they're not now in the, in the spring. And uh, so there is a certain amount of trying to mimic what nature does in, in prescribed fire. Right. So, so, you know, we've, we've got our permitting, you know, information down time of season, how not to kill everything. Um, talk to me about safety on, on the fire. And, and specifically there's a, a wide variety of fire lines, right? There's wet lines, dry lines. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit, tell me, walk me through. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I'm a little bit picky about that. I do not want to use a natural feature like a small creek to stop the fire. What I want is a is a is a line, a fire line that's constructed with, you know, maybe a, a tractor or a dozer or something like that, that I can get my equipment up and down. By the end of the day, I can patrol and go around the entire perimeter. If you're using a natural feature like a creek, that fire may creep into that creek system, and you really don't know if it if it if it got across the creek or not. You know, had to walk in there. So I like what I call those defendable boundaries: roads and fire breaks. A wet line is where you you take you know uh, water maybe mixed with detergent, some wetting agent, and you just wet wet the vegetation and. In theory, <laughs> the fire will, will not go, you know, go underneath the, uh, your wet line. But wet lines are tricky because it's really not as, um, as a, a, it's a good fire line. But we do use wet lines when we don't want to do the, the damage of taking a dozer going around, for example, or maybe around some certain trees you want to protect or maybe a, uh, a road that's in place that you don't want to disturb with a dozer, you can wetline that existing road and fire, use it as a firing point. So, you know, not to get too deep in the weeds on this, but when you're conducting a burn, you know, you're looking at the wind direction. So you want to light your first fire line against the wind. So the fire is backing into the wind away from the line. Okay. And that protects that line and deepens it up. You know, it's, we call it blacked out. It's, we're consuming all the, the, the litter and it's creating, you know, a burned area. So the fire won't make a run at that line and jump over. Gotcha. Is that, is, well, is that what you would consider backfiring or? That's, that's backfiring, correct. Okay. So I just want to yeah. make sure I, I, there's a lot of terminology I'm going to try to, try to yeah. mess up for you here. Well, because like, for example, the head fire is when you light a fire and the wind is driving the fire okay. away from it. And those, and, you know, from a control burn, that's, that's not much control of that. So you're minimizing the amount of head fires that you, you light. It's basically a backing fire. And as you go into the wind, it's called a flanking fire for obvious reasons. It's kind of flanking against the wind. Gotcha. So you want to do, yeah, you want to do that systematically and get the fire to move through that block of land that you're trying to burn, at, you know, in a controlled way. You, you know, it may take all day to burn, let's say, a 100-acre block by doing those 
backing and then flanking fires. So this, this is one of those areas where I think speaking to how, and just hearing you out, like you're using wind as a tool at your disposal for this process, which kind of feeds back into don't get a couple friends and a case of beer and try to light your property on fire to manage the burn, get somebody who knows what they're doing <laughs> is where, where I think that that, that illustrates in this place to you very strongly. Um, tell me about what's sort of some of the essential tools that you need on hand, you know, just some basics. I know, you, you know, what's your preferences? What do you usually have on hand when you work with a, with a prescribed burn? Yeah, Mac, you already mentioned one of them. That's, that's the, the primary tool is, is a drip torch. Drip torch is a, it may hold three gallons of a mixture of diesel and gas, gasoline, and it, it has an igniter and you just drip it on the ground. And that's the main tool that you use for lighting the fire lines and lighting fire. You know, uh, ATVs, side-by-sides, those, you know, those type of equipment is invaluable. You can cover a lot of ground. Having some water source, having a, a maybe a 30 gallon tank of water uh, at your disposal with a, you know, with a, with a sprayer on it to help wet things down. If the fire does jump across the line, which, you know, we have this zero tolerance policy. We're not going to let anything jump, <laughs> but it does happen. And you can wet that, or you can wet something that's on fire that you don't want or slow the fire down with water. You know, some sort of hand tools is like, there's a special type of fire rake it's a heavy duty rake that you can rake through that heavy duff, you know, forest floor. Um, uh, we strongly encourage fire retardant clothing. And uh, there's several places you can buy fire retardant clothing for obvious reasons. I think, you mentioned before, I think you mentioned before, don't go out there with yoga pants. Is that, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, not, that's yeah. not fireproof clothing? Yeah, I've done some work for, you know, uh, help some universities and some institutions manage some of their institutional lands. And invariably, it'll be a research project where we've got grad students that come out or students that want to participate and observe the fire. And so we'll have to have those discussions about yoga pants versus, you know, at least some sturdy blue jeans. And, and I'll go a step further is, uh, and no selfies because <laughs> with your cameras, because, you know, when you're, you know, we've had an incident where they had access to a drip torch and would light a line to make it flare up behind them. And it makes a great backdrop for a selfie. And then you can, you know, what happens, you've got some little bit of resource damage there, but it's all in good fun. At least we've got folks that have an interest in fire and maybe that may be the new generation of fire practitioners you know once once i hang it up so yeah and, and I, I think it's really important to emphasize that too especially when you're working with a burn is is you know I'm, I'm making a joke about yoga pants but the type of clothing that you have like if you've got a lot of polyester on that stuff is extremely flammable yeah so what we what we always encourage people working the fire line is that to, to have all cotton and fire retardant you know cotton undergarments, cotton, you know, blue jeans, things like that, because it won't melt to you in case, you know, the, you know, something severe happens, you know, uh, that uh, cotton is a little more fire retardant, believe it or not, than polyester. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, normally it's not that arduous. We're not, we're controlling the situation. We're not fighting a wildfire. So 
it's it's much more safer than you would think. It's just uh, you know, because it's 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 controlled. Um, talk to me for a second about uh, you know, we've kind of touched on a lot of the strong points, but how how do you find somebody like it? And and I'm again coming from the point of of you know somebody because you said before when we talked that a lot of new landowners are are new to to own owning open land or somebody that's that's got a, a new hunting plot for their family um how, how do you go out and find somebody that's gonna gonna light things on fire and help improve your land most 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 uh state agencies uh, uh forestry agencies will have a vendor list of of people that that is on on the list for control burning or prescribed fire. Uh, I think that you know even with our national land website, we're going to start putting vendors on our list, and hopefully some of those prescribed fire vendors and practitioners will show up on those lists based on you know what county you want information in. Yeah. So it, and it is what kind of designations are you looking for so that you know you know not just somebody that has their their name in the paper and says they can light anything on fire and not do any damage you know what what's the sort of things that you want to ask when when you meet somebody that says they can do a prescribed burn for you well some of the some of the some of the states that uh have uh, state statutes that have gotten really really involved in prescribed fire will have like i said earlier some certifications for example i'm in mississippi mississippi to become a certified prescribed manager, you have to go through, take some online courses and go through some on the ground training and some classroom to get to be quote certified. So those states that have those certifications, you definitely want uh, a certified burn manager. I'll take it a step further in Mississippi because we are a right to burn state based on state legislature, uh, state statutes that um, to, if you are a certified burn manager, state certified, if you have a written burn plan that, you know, that you're proving it by getting notarized before you actually conduct the burn, you have get a burning permit for that day, you are exempt from a lot of any liability. It gives you and the landowner a tremendous amount of liability protection. So I would, I would not, if I was a landowner in those states that have those type of criteria, I definitely would not uh, uh, allow anybody to conduct a burn until they met all those requirements. So I would encourage a landowner to kind of investigate what those state statutes are in their state. Burning vendor is going to be able to adhere to that. Whoops. I, you just cut out like the last five seconds or so. If you could repeat that. Yeah. So what I was saying is it, um, so states that have those have those criteria, what they're looking for, I'd make sure that that vendor has all those all those attributes that he's licensed in the state, that he's has the certification, that he's writing a burning plan for you ahead of time, and uh, liability insurance is a big I, thing. That's liability. very important. I'm guessing because I because I always put. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, for example, I still maintain a liability insurance policy that covers me for burning, and it's not cheap, but I feel like I need it for me and my, my landowner. 
See, and I think those are really important points to know for any landowner, just because I, I always put professional services down between can and should. Like there's a big difference between somebody that can do something and somebody that should do something. Right. Uh, so you could, you could probably get anybody, like I said, with a drip torch in a, in a case of beer, but that doesn't mean that's what, what you should be using. So um, yeah. I think it's really important to note those things. Yeah, I would definitely reach out to your your for your forestry organization within your state and look for a list or at least recommendations from from those 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 people. Awesome. Anything else you want to add to this? Because I, I think that we've kind of covered a lot of the bases, but but you know, given your expertise, I want to make sure that we're covering everything here for anybody listening. Well, I guess I could kind of wrap it up like this that. Prescribed fire is a tremendous tool for, for wildlife management. And a lot of the landowners are buying properties for, you know, admittedly hunting and, and timber management. But, but prescribed fire goes hand in hand with being just a, a smart landowner that you're getting a tremendous wildlife benefit. Uh, arguably even better than you can provide with food plots and, and supplemental nutrition that that is the single most important wildlife tool you can use is, but the trick is finding competent prescribed fire managers to, to do the work. That's, that's, that's the hard part because a lot of that, uh, uh, the technology, a lot of the knowledge of wildfire management that applies back into control burning, it's just, it's, you got to look, you got to look far and hard for, for someone that knows what they're doing. Yeah. And actually, as you were saying our clothes there, I thought of something else to throw at you. Um, what about the case against? I, okay. So you stumped me there because I, I'm a very strong proponent. Of use of <laughs> well, you know, if, no. if the answer is none, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, no, there, there, there is, a, for, for example, what the, the biggest thing with the use of fire is that you don't want to uh, conduct a fire where you burn too aggressive and it damages your timber. Uh, no, no landowner t tolerates scorch. And you can, and you can grow timberlands uh, without having one, ever having fire on your property. Uh, but if you want that ecosystem management, uh, wildlife management tool, fires, still, I'm still very pro fire. Excellent. Um, so Mark, you've got an entire lifetime of experience in, in forestry, fire management, you know, the, the full gamut of outdoors education and, and you're in Mississippi. How's, How's somebody get a hold of you to work with you, man? <laughs> well, you can go to the national, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the uh, National Land uh, website and look, look me up. You can look at my profile. I've got my contact information. Just don't expect me to run out there and do a burn for you because I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a land broker and I spend, you know, a lot of time working for my land clients. No, well, I say that was that was sort of my anger. I wasn't meaning on on the fire, so I and, and I didn't say that. That's my mistake. So so okay. you you work specifically with the buying and selling of land, and and your expertise is wide ranging, not just fires. So so more so on that level. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So I I do have um, some of my clients has been with me for twenty years. 
managing their timberlands. And I, I also enjoy taking on some new clients, trying to find lands for them. Uh, it, I, I, I look, I, I, I've lived an enchanted life. I actually love what I do. I have a, I've been in fire for 30 something years. I, I have a lot of uh, a war chest of stories that we'll go into later, but, uh, <laughs> but I do enjoy and love selling, you know, working for my client and helping them with their land issues. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. And, and thank you for the, the knowledge that, that you have to share. Certainly. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. This concludes this week's episode of the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing prescribed burns with one of our land professionals, Mark Anderson, out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. You can learn more about land ownership or the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.